Welcome to the teaching ministry of Dr. Fred Lowry, illuminating God's Word for today's world. The choice, the Word of God, or the world. The choice, Christ, or culture for us. We can choose Christ. I think the most misunderstood fact about heaven is that when believers die, we do not go to heaven, our eternal home, where we will spend forever. Now that I have your attention, I want you to listen to the truth of God's Word and to listen to what He promises to us. Kelly Lawson, my friend, uh, hooked me up to go uh, up with the skydivers at the, the last uh, air show, and uh, we have several skydivers in our church, and Kelly is, is one that I would jump with. And so, we, you know, when we went through the, the uh, meeting there, uh, the briefing with the air boss, and he said his last words, don't do nothing stupid. So I didn't. Why jump out of a perfectly good airplane? But I want you to think about two skydivers. Both have jumped out of the airplane. It's amazing to me, you know, I, I thought I could watch what they were doing, but and it always happened so quickly. I mean, you just, it just they just go what, just like that. And, you, they, and they go out that way so fast, you don't even see where they, where they went. So they get away from the airplane quickly. So they cleared the airplane, and, and uh, they're not entangled in any cords or safety wires or anything. They're moving at the same speed. Uh, I guess it, it would seem that they are as free as the birds. But there is one crucial difference. One of them has a parachute, and the other doesn't. Now, does this change the sense of freedom and enjoyment? It certainly does for one of them. You see, both are free to fall with gravity, but only one is free not to fall. And, you know, the, I mean, the, the guy without the parachute can go into denial, and he can deny that he doesn't have a parachute. He can try to fool himself and deny that there's a problem, which reminds me of another story of the guy doing his first jump in the military and he was the last one because he kept moving back. And then, uh, but they, they kept telling him, there's no problem. You know, you just jump and count a certain number and then pull the cord and the sheet will open and you'll glide down. And there'll be a jeep to pick you up down there. Well, what happens if it doesn't open up? No problem, it's an emergency chute, just pull it and you'll glide down and there'll be a jeep down there to pick you up. So he finally jumped after they pushed him a little bit, and, and he pulled the first cord, nothing happened. Pulled the second, nothing happened. And the last thing anybody heard him say was, 
I bet that Jeep's not down there either. <laughs> well, you can live in denial, and, and this skydiver who is free-falling can deny there's a problem, and he might even have an exhilarating experience for a moment. But ultimately, gravity is going to kill him because he's unprepared. And when he realizes that, if he gets out of denial, he's going to have nothing but fear. Absolute fear. So, so either he's going to be a, a slave to illusion or he's going to be a, a slave to fear. Now at the conclusion of this message, I'm going to offer you, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm going to offer you the parachute of the gospel. Because eternity is real. The Bible does not give us all the details of heaven. I, I wish we knew more. I'm sure you do. It doesn't answer all of our questions. And I don't know all of God's reasons for that. I feel confident that one of his reasons is simply that he knew that it wouldn't do any good because we couldn't understand. There's no way that, that we could grasp in our mind what heaven really is like. Uh, you've had experiences with that, with, with uh, some place that you've seen pictures of, but then you go see it, and it's altogether different. It's like the Grand Canyon. I mean, you can see a picture of it, but that, that does not do it justice. It's so much more than that when you actually go there. We could think about this church. You know, you, know, you can talk about this church, and you can say, you know, it's a, it has this big building, and it has big walkways out there around this big room, and it has this, or it has that, or it's a pretty good-sized church. But do you know the only way that you can really grasp what this church is about is to experience it? Because it's so much more than a building. A building is such a small part of it. It doesn't even have much to do with the size, how many people. But there's some, some intangibles. There's a spirit. There's a love. There's a commitment that makes this church unique. But you have to experience that. So when it comes to heaven, a child can ask questions about heaven that, that we parents simply can't answer. Because God has sacred surprises and he has spiritual surprises for us. God keeps sacred secrets from us. There's some things that, that he is waiting to reveal at a, at a later time because he knows that's best. And so we trust him with that. Here's what I believe. We know enough now. And I'm telling you enough to be excited. I mean, listen to that song, I can only imagine. I, I just can't imagine and get excited. We know, we know enough now to want to go home, to want to be there, to want to experience it. But we will know it all later. And that's the promise from our God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 4, Paul was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. Some of those sacred secrets. 
In chapter 13, verse 12, Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So there's a lot about heaven that we cannot comprehend. And there are things about heaven that we cannot know. But I don't want you to dismiss that and come up with the fact that, well, we're not to know anything about heaven and the Bible doesn't tell us anything about heaven. You see, if we can't envision heaven, we won't look forward to it like we should. And so to present the idea that we can't know what heaven is like because the Bible doesn't tell us enough, I think that's dumbing down Scripture. I think that's a put down on the Word of God. Because I promise you the Word of God gives us plenty to know about heaven. He gives us all we need to know, and He certainly gives us enough to know that we are excited about our future. And we look forward to when we see heaven as it really is. So the point of this entire series as we talk about heaven for a few weeks is that we have a biblical basis for envisioning heaven. Not speculation. Not somebody's book on heaven. Not somebody who's had a supposedly a heaven experience, an after-death experience. But the one thing we can count on for certain is the Word of the living God. Absolutely true. And what we want is a biblical picture of heaven. But here's what I want you to, and I wanted to get to Revelation 21, and I already know because you're not listening fast enough that we may not really deal with that chapter until next Sunday. So don't miss next Sunday. I'm telling you right now. In our trying to grasp heaven, our tendency is to look up. But it may well be for us to really grasp heaven, what we need to do is look around. Because the Bible says there will be new heavens and a new earth. And it appears from reading Scripture that one day in the future that heaven and earth will no longer be separated and God will be in the midst. So I think sometimes because we're trying to look up and figure out what heaven would be like, we may miss much of what God says when He talks about creating a new earth. If you could just imagine a new earth that is free from sin and suffering and sorrow, just imagining that, I think, would stir your heart. Imagine what this earth would be like if it had not been poisoned and polluted by sin for thousands of years. So my hope is that God would remove the blinders of any preconceived ideas of heaven and let us see clearly what the Bible says about heaven. And Once we have a good understanding of what God has said, then we can turn loose our sanctified imagination and even get more excited about what could await us on the other side. Now, I think some of you are afraid to do that because maybe you have the type of personality and temperament that you build things up in your mind too much. Like you're going on a trip and you get it so built up in your mind there's not a place in the world can measure up when you get there and you're disappointed. 
Well, I got good news for, for those of you who are like that. You cannot build up heaven too much. Whatever you can build up in your mind and look forward to, I believe it'll be 10 trillion times better than that. Here's what Paul says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2, 9. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. We talk a lot about having a biblical worldview and transferring that, teaching that to our children, passing it on to the next generation, and that's so very important. Everyone has a worldview. It's either conscious or unconscious, but there is a worldview. The Christian worldview is always focused on heaven. The Christian worldview, the emphasis is on the world to come, not this world that we presently live in. Now, some people would call that escapism. Uh, that we're just going to live up there in the clouds somewhere and escape reality. But it's not that at all. If it's escapism, it's escapism with purpose, with a longing in our heart. It's what the Scripture commands. Set your affections on things above. Set your mind on heaven. Remain focused on heaven. I'm telling you, uh, God dwells within us as believers. And one thing about heaven, wherever God is, that is heaven. So there is a little bit of heaven within us now. And that is a pull all the time. There is a tug all the time toward our real home. Because there's heaven within us. And there is that longing to go to our eternal home. Paul, I promise you, Paul's philosophy was anything but that of an escapist. Uh, he went through all kind of uh, difficulty. He dealt with reality and struggle on a daily basis. Here's what he says in chapter 4, verse 8. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Why? Heaven. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Why? Heaven. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Why? Heaven. Struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Heaven. The tug of heaven, the hope of heaven in his heart. Peter reminds us that whatever we suffer in this life is not, is not worthy to even be compared with the glory of heaven on the other side. John MacArthur said, We don't seek to escape this life by dreaming of heaven. But we do find we can endure this life because of the certainty of heaven. I think that's right on target. Because, see, nothing in this world is permanent. Everything we can see and touch is passing away. You see, we get all mixed up. We get confused. We're always looking at this world. We think this, this is real. This is solid. This is permanent. This could melt in a skinny second. Everything we can see and touch, the Bible says, is passing away, fading away, deteriorating. And those things that we can't see and touch, those are the permanent things. 
He's saying that more real than what you can see and touch are the things of heaven that you can only see by faith. Those are the things that are the most real and the most permanent. So therefore, we're not, uh, we're not to be hung up in this world. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is not seen. For what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. Now that we know that if this earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. So that's permanent. The next world. This world is transitory. It's fading. It's deteriorating. It's dissolving. And how foolish it is to give your hearts and lives, to give your energy, to give your soul to something that is dissolving and passing away. And not to live for that which lasts forever. So, what happens when you die? I believe the Bible teaches that The moment you die, you are escorted by the angels instantly, in the blink of an eye, into the presence of the Lord. No long tunnel of darkness. In fact, heaven is about light. It's the opposite of darkness. No soul sleep. No purgatory. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. For the one who leaves this life instantly in the presence of the Lord and all the things we talked about last week, all the wonderful things that John describes in chapter 14, all of those things available for those who are in the presence of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, we're confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Paul says, I know enough right now to know I'd rather be at home with the Lord. Verse, chapter 1, verse 23, he says, I'm torn between the two. I desire to part, where? To go to heaven, to be with Christ, which is better by far. Paul said, it's, I desire, I'm, I have a longing, I'm ready, I'm homesick for heaven. I know that's the real world. I know that's the permanent world. I know that's where I belong. I know that I'm a stranger here, an alien here. Heaven is my home. And I'm ready to go right now. He said, I'm torn because I need to stay because these churches need my help. But if you want to know my heart's desire, I'd be happy to go instantly to be with the Lord. Paul went on to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain." For me to live is Christ, to die is just more of Christ. What about the verses in the Bible that, that talk about when you die, you, you go to sleep? And some think you just sleep then for years and years and years and years. Soul sleep. John eleven eleven. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. So Lazarus has died, and the Bible says he's fallen asleep. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Now, this word sleep in these passages 
The word has to do with the body and not the soul. It is the body that sleeps in death and waits on the resurrection, not the soul. The soul goes to be in the presence of the Lord. And the body waits to be reconstituted and resurrected. So, when it talks about the, the, the people of the, who die in the Lord enter into their rest, if we use that word, it would simply mean that they, they rest from the struggle and the suffering of this world. And uh, they are enjoying the presence of the Lord. It is not a rest of unconsciousness. Hear me now. You don't just go to sleep and then you just sleep and sleep and it's, uh, you're unconscious. John says as soon as they get there, they're singing and praising God, worshiping. So it's not a rest of unconsciousness. It's a rest from the struggle of a sin-cursed world and the peace of being with the Lord. And being with the redeemed who are singing and praising God. So the question, where will you spend eternity? Where will I spend eternity? And we're not talking this morning about heaven and hell because that's a destination that is a given. There is a heaven for the believer and there is a hell for the unbeliever. And every person in this room this morning is either heaven bound or hell bound. And I need to mention again that the default is not heaven, it's hell. If you do nothing, you go to hell. If you just assume everything's okay, you go to hell. And at the end of these messages on heaven, at the end of each one, you will have an opportunity to accept Jesus Christ into your heart and life and become a member of God's forever family. Nothing is more important than that. So in these next few minutes, I'm not talking about the final destination. I'm talking more about location. Where do we spend eternity? What is the final location of our eternal home? Because the Bible seems to indicate, and I want you to not take my word, I want you to Get your Bible, and I want you to look at these verses and, and let God's Holy Spirit take you through these verses and see what they're saying. Where Christians live in eternity, because there appears to be a difference between where our loved ones are now and where our eternal home will be later. The Bible seems to be teaching that when we die, we go to an intermediate heaven, a temporary heaven, and not to our final and eternal home. Now, this may be new to you. This may be confusing to, to you because you haven't heard it. But this is not a new teaching. This has really been the teaching of the church through the ages. Sadly, preachers have not preached much about heaven or hell. Churches haven't talked about heaven or hell much in the last 25, 30, 40 years, and that's sad. Just because we're not talking about it doesn't have anything to do with the reality of it. 
But we need to talk about it. We need to understand about it because here's the good news. The more you understand, it doesn't take away, it adds to. It just gets better. The more you, the more you study, the more you understand, the more you grasp what God is saying in His Word, the more excited you get about your eternal home and the more you look forward to that eternal home. But it appears that when we die, we go to this intermediate heaven and there we wait for four things to happen. One is the return of Christ to earth, and Jesus is coming back to this earth, literally. And I believe it's soon. I don't know when He's coming, but I believe it's soon. At least the signs are everywhere. The second is our bodily resurrection. There will be a bodily resurrection. And then there will be the final judgment, the great white throne judgment, when the sinners, the unbelievers, will be cast into a devil's hell. And then there will be the creation of new heavens and a new earth. And if that's the case, the heaven we go to at death isn't eternal. It is our temporary dwelling. It is our heavenly apartment. Wonderful, but nothing compared to the big house. We talk about living with God forever in heaven, but when you begin to understand about this new earth and new heavens, it was the curse that messed up everything. It was sin that messed up everything. It was sin in the garden. Man, as you know, got kicked out of the garden. God must love gardens because he begins with a garden and he ends with a garden. And someone said it's the garden in the middle that lets us end in a garden. It was the garden of Gethsemane where Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. And he died taking our place on the cross. But you see, God designed earth for man and man messed that up. But what did God do? He loved man so much that he has made him a new creation, a new creature in Christ Jesus. And it just may well be that in the end time, he will reverse the curse. And he says, create a new heavens and a new earth. I don't know about you, but that's exciting to me. To know that we have that to look forward to. Uh, let me just, a, a simple illustration. Suppose you are living in a single wide mobile home like three of our staff members. And... All of a sudden, you realize that you have an inheritance. You have inherited a beautiful, spacious, incredible home in Maui overlooking the ocean, completely furnished, including flip-flops at the door. <laughs> and so you can't wait to get there and you get your ticket, but your ticket says Dallas. And you find that you have a stopover in Dallas. But the place in Dallas is absolutely incredible. And you find that you're, you have loved ones and family who've gone on before you. So it's a wonderful time of fellowship, and it's so far beyond 
the mobile home back in Bossier City. That it is a wonderful place and you have a wonderful experience. But you see, it is a stopover. Your true destination, your permanent home, is not the temporary stopover in Dallas. But you're on your way to Maui. That permanent home. The new heavens and the new earth, says the Bible. So when, when your loved ones die, they're in a temporary place that is absolute, absolutely wonderful. But the best is still yet to come. That's so much better than earth. That's away from the struggle and the suffering. That's to be in the presence of the Lord. Amazingly wonderful and so wonderful we can't even describe it. And yet the Bible seems to indicate it's going to get better than that. It's going to get better than that. And it's something that we can identify because it's going to be a new earth. We, we understand. We see this earth. We visualize this earth. And God's going to make it new and He's going to reverse the curse. This may be hard for you to grasp, but let me just take this illustration a little bit further. And let's say that that Maui that you were going to turned out to be Bozier, made totally new and perfect, without sin, the curse reversed, a part of the new earth, the new creation, where all of God's people and where the new Jerusalem and God dwells with His people forever and heaven and earth are no longer separated. We'll talk about that in, the, in Revelation 21, where the water is not there, the water that separates, but now there is freedom for God to, to walk as He did with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day, and there's that intimacy with God. Again, we do not know all that this means. We just simply have to look at what the Bible is saying and we know that the curse is going to be reversed. We know that it will be 10 trillion times better than Disney World. It will be God's world. The perfect creation. We also know that when, when man messed up, when man sinned, when we had the fall, that was not a surprise to God. God already had a plan. A plan to redeem mankind from sin and death. A plan to make man a new creation in Christ Jesus. And a plan to make a new heavens and a new earth. Job 19.25. Listen to this. I know that my Redeemer lives. It's one of our favorite parts of a verse to quote. And that in the end, He will stand on the earth. But read on. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. After I have died, I will again see God on this earth. And then almost like in case you, didn't, you don't believe it, I myself will see Him with my own eyes 
Then he takes it further. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. I'm telling you, when you realize one day you're going to see God on this earth with your own eyes. Not hearing about it, not reading about it, experiencing it. It makes your heart yearn for that day. Isaiah 65, 17. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. 2 Peter 3.13 But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Revelation 21.1 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. No longer any separation. And there are many other passages that imply new heavens and a new earth. So what it seems to mean is that one day God will alter the heavens and the earth in such a way that it amounts to a new creation. In the final chapter of Isaiah's prophecy, he says... The heavens and the new earth, the new heavens will remain forever. As the new heavens and the new earth that I will endure before me. This new heaven and new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord. So your name and descendants endure. And Revelation 21 then gives us a full exposition of Isaiah's promise. It is the passage that leads us into eternity, our final home, our permanent home, where all of God's people will live with God forever and ever. And in that chapter is an inexhaustible description of this new heaven and new earth and of God's capital city, the holy city, New Jerusalem. Heaven's mentioned over 550 times in the Bible. It's mentioned 50 times or more in the book of the Revelation. But let me give you the setting before Revelation 21. We've talked about it briefly. There will be the final battle at Armageddon. That battle has been fought. And then the earthly millennial reign of Christ comes to an end. And then the great white throne judgment. God has sentenced Satan and all unbelievers into the final eternal hell. And by the way, people who die lost, they are in torment, but they're not in the final hell. They're in a stopover place. Now, it's going to be terrible, but nobody has been cast into that final hell yet because that comes after the great white throne judgment. So now all of this has taken place, and evil is purged from the universe. And the new heavens and the new earth will take the place of the old. And it will endure forever. And we will endure forever. And we will be with God forever. And with our loved ones 
and family forever. But let me say another thing from, from Peter who gives us so much help in how, how this all happens. We've said there's going to be new heavens and a new earth. And it's going to be forever, our final home. Peter says, before all of this happens that we just talked about had to happen, before all of this happens, there will be a time of apathy, carelessness, unbelief, skepticism, doubt. Peter says, you know, people will be saying things like, well, it's been 2,000 years. If he hadn't come by now, he's not coming. I mean, you Christians are just crazy as you can be. You, it's wishful thinking. It's, it's escapism. It's not a reality. If he hasn't come in all these years, he's not coming. If he hasn't rained down judgment, look what all has happened. Look at all the ungodliness. If God hasn't rained down judgment, he's not going to ever rain down judgment. Well, Peter has answers for the skeptics because God's Holy Spirit is supplying those answers. Time is a limitation of man, not of God. One day in a thousand years, the same to God matters not. And by the way, God did destroy the entire human race with a flood. And there's all kind of geological and archaeological evidence of that flood. And he made a promise and gave a covenant with a rainbow that he would never do it with water again, but next time it would be with fire. The second thing Peter tells us is that God is amazingly patient. We learned that in studying the book of Daniel on Wednesday nights. That he kept warning the children of Israel year after year for 490 years God was patient. And then he said, that's enough. And they were destroyed. And the remnant taken off into captivity. God is amazingly patient. And right now God's grace is on display. But one day his wrath will be poured out. 2 Peter 3, 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow. He's not slack in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So Peter says, God is not slack concerning His promises. God is amazingly patient. The third thing he says, God's day of wrath will come. Verse 7, But by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. Did you get that? The same, by the same word, the present heavens and present earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment, and destruction of ungodly men. In verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Now the atomic and nuclear explosions would just give us a hint of this kind of destruction. It says there will be a great noise. The elements melting. The heavens burned up. Some commentators think that the, the fire will, will be taken the heavens and the heat from that fire will melt earth itself. We also know that earth is sitting on a fireball 
the earth's core is liquid fire. So the bottom line is this. Everything we know will be burned up in the culmination of that eschatological period called the day of the Lord. Just because it hasn't come in no way means it's not coming. Every promise God ever made, He has kept and He will keep every one of them. One day God's wrath and judgment will be poured out. We can know that that will happen. Verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destructions of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. So, Peter seems to be saying, if everything you see around you is perishing, don't you think you ought to grab hold of something that's not? Don't you think you ought to live for something that's eternal? Something that doesn't fade, that doesn't perish? That is eternal. We're to live our lives with a heaven perspective. Verse 13, but in keeping with this promise, we're looking forward to that new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So here's the question. Where will you be 100 years from now? Where will you be? Based on the Bible. Well, if you have a gospel parachute, and if the Lord tarries, you will be with Jesus in an intermediate heaven with friends and loved ones, waiting on your permanent resurrection bodies and your final eternal home. And where you are is wonderful beyond prescription. Wonderful beyond any kind of description we could make of it. And you're conscious, and you're worshiping and praising God. But then, in Revelation 21, we're led into eternity, our ultimate future, our ultimate heavenly home, the beginning of forever. And in that final home, it is the perfect world, perfectly ruled by a perfect God. Nothing that we could imagine could be as wonderful and great as that will be. And we'll spend an eternity the recipient of God's love and kindness. Our relationships will be perfect with one another, and we'll talk more about who do you know in heaven, do you know it, and why we don't marry in heaven, those kind of things. We'll talk about some of those things. But every relationship will be perfect. Every need met, every desire fulfilled, and eternity of bliss and happiness, and eternity with God. But if you have not accepted Jesus Christ and invited him into your heart and life as your Lord and Savior, then what that means is you land in eternity without a parachute. And there is no hope. There is no turning back. 
And what lies ahead for you is what's called the great white throne judgment where you stand face to face with God and your sins are brought up. How many sins does it take to keep you out of heaven? One. How many do you have? All unbelievers then will be cast into the final lake of fire that burns forever and ever. The same word that says heaven is forever says hell is forever. And one of the saddest pictures about hell is it's a place where you're always dying, but you never die. Heaven is a place of light. No sun or moon there because God is light. Hell is total darkness because God is not there. You say, well, what if I just don't believe hell and heaven are real places? What if I still don't believe that? Well, let me, let me just talk about that reasoning. Whether you believe it or not doesn't have anything to do with the, the reality of it. But suppose heaven and hell aren't real and this life is it. It's not the case, but suppose it is by your reasoning. Suppose it's it. I want you to know you're looking at a guy that has lived his life for Christ and has been the most wonderful experience I could ever imagine. And I've spent my life in the church and it's absolutely been a wonderful experience. And my life is so much better because of Christ and the church. That I simply cannot lose. If there was no heaven or hell, I have had the greatest life, the maximum life possible. I can never lose. But what I want to say to you, my friend, is if you reject Christ believing there's not a heaven and a hell, not only do you miss out on the best life here, but you're going to hell for eternity. You lose both ways. You lose in this life, you really lose in the life to come. Because, see, this world is all mixed up. This world is, they're free-falling and say, man, isn't this fun? But how quick does it turn to fear and terror when you realize you don't have a parachute? You hadn't made preparation. I want you to think about Job. See him standing there. Hear him say, I know that my Redeemer lives. And I know that one day this, this body, this, these eyes of mine, I myself, I'm going to see my Redeemer. I'm going to see him. Would you stand with me? And I want Gina to come sing. And you feel free to sing along with her. And let's... Let's experience what Job was saying when he said, I know, I know, I know, I know my Redeemer lives. We hope you were blessed by our program today. If you would like a copy of today's program, go to www.fredlowry.com where you can find this program and other Christian resources by Dr. Fred Lowry. 